I'm Elaine Casket, and welcome to the third special installment of Life on Tech, the Reboot series. This week's episode corresponds to Chapter 3 of Reboot, which is out on the 31st of August, and it's about early childhood and sharenting, which is adults, mostly parents, sharing children's information online for fun, for various more complex psychological motivations, and sometimes for profit. This episode includes Amelia Tate, a journalist who describes her beat as being how technology affects people, how we socialize, how we think, and particularly children on the internet. One of her pieces, her Truman Babies article in Rolling Stone, was featured in Chapter 3 of Reboot. I also speak with Leah Plunkett, author of Sharenthood, Why We Should Think Before We Talk About Our Kids Online which came out in 2020 with MIT Press. She's a faculty member at Harvard Law School and describes herself on her website as someone who has nerdy, funny, and big-hearted conversations about kids, digital life, and law, which we did. But my first guest doesn't have an impressive CV and hasn't written books or articles, but she's absolutely central to the story. I sharented my own child for nine years on social media from before she was born up to the age of nine. And I posted not just photographs, but dialogues between us, which I faithfully and usually secretly transcribed for publication online, and which I eventually downloaded into a book covering her first six years. But my unease about it was starting to grow So I decided to sit down and talk with her about it in 2019. That conversation ended up being the catalyst for Reboot, which is a lot about leveraging the care you have for others and for the health of your relationships to reevaluate your own technology use. That conversation was recorded with her consent at the time. I also asked my now 13-year-old for consent to use the audio for this podcast, and suffice to say, it was a negotiation. I'll tell you more about that later. But she was then nine years old, although at points in the conversation, her speech regressed to how she sounded when she was five or six or even younger. I thought at the time she was just being silly, but now that I think about it, She was actually sometimes dropping into the voice register she would have had during the points in time we were talking about. So I was wondering what what your, tell me what some of your opinions and thoughts, because a lot of parents share stuff on social media even before their kids are old enough to know or say anything about it. There are baby pictures of you, you know, that I share with friends and family on Facebook. So say, say a little, tell me a little bit about, just say whatever you, what are some of your thoughts about it? We were in a pub for lunch, which explains all the background noise and the chewing. Yeah, I, I didn't like it when you were doing funny conversations on Facebook. Do you remember when you decided you didn't like that? I didn't know about it, but... Mm-hmm. And I didn't like that. Tell me why. But there's some with the funny things, even though they are funny, they were sort of embarrassing sometimes, so I didn't really like her. Now that the funny conversations are put into a book, 
you read that book sometimes, don't you? Yeah. What do you think of it? Uh, I, I, I like. I like reading it myself. Um, uh huh. One time, but um, I don't like other people reading it. If a parent has done something like that, like puts things up in the past, what do you think they should? What do you think should happen now? Like to so the things that are on there. Like, what do you think? It should be deleted immediately. It's deleted immediately. And the parent should be put on the naughty list. been for you when you've met people that you don't really know but they seem to know stuff about you for example when we were in america i saw that you had sent someone um um like the um the um sign that i made on the door yeah remember we talked about that to see if i could include that story in my book remember that story about how that hurt your feelings remember that i know because we thought it was a good lesson for other people that parents shouldn't do that. Remember? Yeah. You gave me permission for that though, didn't I? Because that, that time I asked permission, but I hadn't asked permission before, had yeah. I? And you sent it to someone that I didn't know. It was on Facebook, you know, yeah, she was a friend of mine, yeah. Like a huge number of parents share the picture of the baby inside the tummy on, on social media. You're shaking you your head. I don't think the baby should do because they didn't ask the baby even though the baby can't talk mm. they didn't ask the baby the baby needs to be asked but you know I have pictures on there from before you knew anything about anything you know much less you know sort of social media and stuff like that mm -hmm. so I wouldn't want you to be a bit embarrassed by anything so I'm kind of thinking well Plus, you don't need a picture of someone in the bath. <laughs> like, you might be having a bath every day. Like, the baby in the bath five years ago or something. Mm. You don't even need to know that that was happening a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And why would you even take a picture of me in the bath? I don't know. You know, all parents seem to do that. It's interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know. I but funny, like a child made a bubble bed or something. Mm -hmm. but yeah. Just randomly taking a picture of him in the bath is a bit weird. Mm. So when you grow up, or even now, you like to look at pictures of yourself when you were little, but you yeah. don't care you don't like to care for people other people seeing it mm -hmm. mm. so and so what about those situations where we're on a holiday and there's like a nice picture of you and all your cousins or something like that you know how do you feel about pictures like that um i think it should be sent to the family mm -hmm. and like some friends mm -hmm that you know quite well, like... What's your general opinion about social media, just from what you know about it? Because you know it's a very new thing. I you know, it, like, 
social media really only started happening about four years before you were born. It's not like it's been around forever. Like, what's your, what are some of your thoughts about it from, from what you know? Um, because sometimes maybe you would really know the person, so um, you might want to, um, you might want to check like who they are. Like, you might want to know a bit more about them. Why do you think people are so interested in social media? Because, like, it's nice to see what your friends are doing and that kind of thing. But sometimes you don't know if they're actually really your friends. Yeah. I'm getting this from internet safety. <laughs> You're getting that from internet, from internet safety? Yeah. That's cool. So what concerns you the most about people sharing pictures on, online if their children are on their social media? They need to ask the child mm -hmm. if they approve of like them showing that. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, like probably when is quite young, mm -hmm. like probably say yes to everything, like them, her in the bath and like stuff like that. Yeah. So um, I thought maybe maybe that wasn't a good idea. Like would be a good idea to ask because like. I don't know. What about you? Because the other people, like, they might want to, like, if some of their friends might like to catch up on what the child's like. And... Exactly, yeah. See, I think, that, I think that that was a big part of it for me because, you know, when I had a child, it was a big new thing for me. A lot of my friends and family were far away. So they weren't able to meet you or they weren't able to see, you know, see what I was doing. So I think that for me, when I was doing it, when I was sharing things, it was because, um, uh, you know, so many people were far away, and I, I don't know if I would have done the same sorts of things if, if my family and friends hadn't been far away. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. So I think that was probably my motivation. And mm -hmm. then when you did say funny things, it was kind of nice to... So it was kind of like a substitute for meeting you in a way, because they could mm -hmm. see, like, pictures of what you looked like, and then they could hear the sorts of things that you said. Like looking at baby pictures, like, yeah, like what, new baby, like staring, like. Well, even when you got a bit older and you could talk and everything, and then people would be happy and sort of say, "Oh, well, that's so nice," and blah blah blah. Like some parents are quite extreme, you know. They share absolutely everything, or they yeah. use their kids for the blogs, or they, you know, kind of, you know, they just take a million pictures of their kids and they're always sharing them and, and stuff. <laughs> You take a million pictures of me. No, I know, but I didn't share. I don't share them to the same extent that, and I'm not using it to make money. Sometimes it gets a bit annoying. <laughs> yeah, you can see that. Sometimes there are people. Sometimes they're called parent bloggers or mummy bloggers because oftentimes they're women, and they do a lot of blogging. Like you know, who, you know, and you know, she's been writing about her kids, taking pictures of her kids, and sort of like, and she writes about her family all the time. And that's how she makes her money, you know, that, like, that's her job because other moms and dads read these things and she talks about different products and clothes and this and that, you know, for kids and, you know, that's how she makes her money, but, like, she's been doing it ever since her kids were little babies and sharing all this sort of stuff. Do you think that that's okay for a job or do you think that that's a problem or what do you I'm think about sure that? I'm not sure if that's a good job, I mean, um, you don't have to take pictures. If it's like showing good clothes, then maybe you could just take a picture of the clothes. You don't take a, a picture of them 
on the child. Mm-hmm. So but like if a mummy, like for example, doesn't really have another job that she can easily do that will still allow her to look after her kids, do you think it's right for people to kind of make money off, well, it's kind of like making money off their kids, I suppose, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The kids should probably get some of the money, I mean, for letting their parents do that. Yeah. This conversation continued beyond the recorded part. On the walk home from the pub, I asked her why she'd never been so candid before, which is a funny question for a person in a position of greater power to ask someone of lesser power. And she shrugged and said she didn't think I would stop. It was a perfect expression of learned helplessness, and I knew what I needed to do. About six months later, having posted no further images and no further dialogues on social media, I removed all the past material involving my child from Facebook and Instagram, which was no easy feat, I describe it in the book. Obviously, the whole theme of this was about consent, about more powerful people like me, about less powerful people like my child, and getting children's permission to share things, and whether you even can. Well, I have a teenager now, and when I wanted to use the audio recording of this, it wasn't an easy conversation. I had to do a lot of explaining to her why I felt it was important that people have an example of an actual conversation between a parent and a young child about these kinds of issues, the kind of conversations that we don't have, the kind of conversations we should have more of. And eventually she came round. However, I did need to compensate her fairly for the use of the audio, and we're going to be thinking a lot more about that in the next interviews. I was never a parent blogger. I never derived any profit from my sharenting activities. The benefits I got were legion, but they were not financial. My conversation with journalist Amelia Tate, which you're about to hear, focuses primarily on the phenomenon of family vlogging, video blogging, which emerged alongside the rise of YouTube. In her Truman Babies piece in Rolling Stone, which I reference at the start of chapter three, She interviews some of the Truman babies, teenagers who were amongst the first kids to be shared about online in this way. So here's me talking to UK-based journalist Amelia Tate. Probably from the very start of my career, I've written about children on the internet. Um, So one of my very first freelance pieces was examining this idea of family vlogging, which is essentially filming your family daily for the world to see. Um, And my my very first one of my very first freelance pieces in about 2014 was for The Guardian, which was just questioning, uh, is this all as happy and wonderful as it seems? Or is it a little bit sinister at times is a little bit worrying uh, when we think about the children's rights um, to privacy. So ever since then, that's been a real particular niche within my niche for me. And what do you think it was that drew you to that focus on kids? So actually, my own interest as a teenager in watching this kind of content. So uh, when I was a teenager, I would watch family vloggers, and I would love it. I would be like, oh my gosh, this family in America go to Disneyland once a month and the dad loves the kids and is always playing with the kids. And it was this sort of escapist fantasy, right? Um, Where it's like, wow, this is what the perfect family would look like. Um, Which it since since turns out that 
that was not the case and there's been alcohol and cheating scandals within within that family so not everything is how it looks like but anyway back when I was kind of you know genuinely enjoying this content my older brother said to me don't you think it's a bit weird that um they film their children all all day every day and they make money off their children don't you think that's exploitative and I was very defensive and was like no you're wrong you know I love them um but then I think it really stuck in my head so I have my brother to thank for my career because ever since then I was I was thinking about it and reassessing it and seeing it in a different way when you wrote the Truman Babies piece, you were able to kind of catch up in a way with kids that you were maybe, you know, what happened to that generation that you were following when you were a teenager yourself as they entered adolescence and started to find their voices. So what really stuck out to you as you were engaging with these families and looking at the broader sweep of what it had been like to be vlogged and sharented about from an early stage? Yeah, it's really interesting because you're bang on in that I think from the moment that I first started writing about it, I was waiting for these children to grow up. Um, not to make that sound creepy, but I was waiting to see, you know, okay, actually family vlogging started in earnest in 2008. Um, that means that these kids are turning 13, 14, kids that were filmed from the literal moment of their birth. Maybe they're just about old enough now to reflect. And um, I got two very different experiences, you know, a young boy who essentially didn't really see any problems, even though his mum had started to see problems with it and um, felt that it was undermining her family's privacy and safety. Her son himself, you know, he loved saying that he had so many followers on YouTube. He loved the free gifts from Lego and the fame and the glory and, you know, the fun times they'd have as a family filming. Uh, he loved the idea that they helped people because obviously, you know, that is what people often say. That it's like a surrogate family relationship um, that brightens their day to watch these people. And then I spoke with a young girl who was very reflective and honest, a 13-year-old, who talked a little bit more about how she just didn't have the vocabulary when she was a child to tell her mom to stop filming, um, to express that she didn't want the camera on her, that it felt a bit odd sometimes to do sponsored content, um, that it's unnerving when strangers come up to you and act like they know you. And so she had this sort of wonderfully reflective account and you know I think one thing that's really interesting to know is that I approached 20 maybe 30 families for this piece and two or three got back to me willing to be interviewed so it, it is the case that there are people out there with these stories who aren't in the position yet to tell them right stories that might be a bit more severe um yeah that you know their parents are still in control of who they speak to and what they say um so I do think, yeah, in five to 10 years, we will see much more of this. It's pretty interesting when a journalist comes and says, I'm writing a story for Rolling Stone magazine, and I'd like to talk to you about this. And a lot of those activities that they've done over the years were all resting on the idea of publicity and attention and all those things. And then they don't get back to you. And I'm wondering if you have some hypotheses about some of the reasons why those families might have been resistant to talking to you for the story. Yeah, I think one explicitly did say, you know, as long as you promise there's no negativity, which obviously I cannot promise as a journalist. Um, I do think that when you curate your own fan base and you literally curate your comment section so you can ban certain words from from your comment section you can ban the word exploitation so that if anybody types that in the comment section it would never show up um so you can create you know your own community which in many ways is wonderful and positive and in other ways sort of um 
means that you are immune to that criticism. You don't engage with it. You don't see it. Um, And there is a lot of criticism because there are hate forums about these families as well. So people go too far the other way, trolling them. So it's an interesting dichotomy. But yes, I think um, people weren't prepared for that level of scrutiny because who knows what your kid's going to say when a journalist says, how do you actually feel being recorded? Because, you know, this is a question that they sometimes engage with on the channels. But having watched these channels for so long, I've seen firsthand the mistruths. So they'll always say, if at any time our little daughter wants to stop, we'll stop recording. And then you'll have footage of, you know, um, one particular video sticks out in my mind of a young preteen girl talking about a boy that she fancied at school and going like, dad, don't put this on the vlog. Don't put this on the vlog. Dad, no. And then on camera, we could see how he cajoled her to be like, okay, I guess it's fine. And the sad thing fundamentally, I think, is that that child thinks they know what they want. But ultimately, their parents can convince them that their views are their views. So, you know, it can take a few years before they think about what they really want for themselves, particularly when you put that issue of the fact that they're making money for their family. So, yes, long winded answer is that I don't think they wanted to be exposed to that kind of scrutiny and questioning. And then I suppose the other side of that is that, you know, they have all the publicity and fame and money making ability built in to their channel um, that you know, this is something I found with journalism generally, um, traditional publications, photo shoots, et cetera. They don't hold as much sway anymore. They don't excite people as much anymore as they might have a decade ago because um, they don't need, you know, they don't need the middleman. They can just go straight to their audience. What you're speaking about, I was pretty candid about uh, in this book, in Reboot, in this chapter about Sharon Ting. I felt it was really important to hold my own hands up and say, this is what's occurred for me because I think really one of the inspirations for the book fundamentally was this conversation that I had with my then nine-year-old. So she basically said, I have learned helplessness. I don't think that if I say anything to you that you'll necessarily stop what you're doing. And I wasn't a professional blogger or vlogger. I was getting no money from this. What I was getting was whatever I was needing at those times emotionally, whatever emotional itch needed scratching, whether that was I was lonely or I wanted validation or I wanted connection from my faraway family or I wanted to feel good in some kind of way that really had more to do with me. Um, But I became acutely aware, and this is why I wanted to write the whole book in a way, of how I curated my child and her personality in a way that meant she never met a stranger. She always met people who thought they had her all figured out and all sussed out. And it really crowded her ability to develop in her own way because people were looking for something particular from her, which is what I had curated. And I'd ignored protest behaviors like the one you described, that adolescent saying, dad, don't do whatever. Sometimes those protest behaviors are verbal and explicit, and sometimes they're not. Totally. And you can really start to see them when you're looking out for them in these videos, you know, children not engaging or looking away or just, you know, trying not to be on the camera, hiding away. And you just hope that, you know, a lot of these families, I'm sure, are doing the decent thing, turning the camera off and asking um, their children these questions. But uh, a lot aren't, Uh, you know, a lot are explicitly exploiting their children. Um, You know, they know that videos of their children end up on sinister websites, on the dark web, etc. And they still cater to that audience with, as you mentioned, you know, videos of children in the bath, etc. So I think the tragic thing about all of this is that there are absolutely zero checks and balances to determine who are the good actors, who are the bad actors, and to kind of just rein everyone in to make sure that everyone's acting in the best interest of their child. I mean, 
that's a piece I wrote in 2017, just looking at, in the UK, which regulatory body is examining family vlogging? Is it, you know, the regulatory body that um, signs off on child actors and, and whether children can be in films or um, adverts? No, they won't touch it. Um, is it, you know, I, I went through all these different bodies, Ofcom, et cetera, and everyone said no. We, we don't touch it. We don't regulate it. And that's still the case today. Um, the tail end of last year, there was an influencer committee that spoke about, right, we need to set some rules in place for family vlogging. Uh, but there has been no update there about legislation. Uh, so I just find it really, really tragic. And I just do think we're going to get more and more stories, five, 10 years, as I said. And that's probably when the legislation will come. That's probably when the attitudes will change. But right now, um, a lot of children are suffering in both explicit and kind of more subtle ways, like you mentioned about your daughter's identity and um, the way that that can be constricted and circumcised by, you know, internet strangers thinking that they know you. Yeah. And this whole thing about the messaging or the teaching that is happening from parents to children about a kid's power to determine their own boundaries or their ability to say what matters to them and have that be respected or what happens when you express yourself, are you heard? I guess I sort of think about what's being shaped or what's being taught with having power, assertiveness, clear communication, hope that somebody will hear you in relationships, in relationships that they'll have throughout their lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, yeah. gosh, just conveying to my daughter through my actions that she doesn't have the agency to determine and enforce her own boundaries is that the message mm -hmm. that i want to be teaching yeah because that doesn't seem like but i was so i think at that time well a i had a different narrative about i, well, I was aware of that I would, yeah. which is crazy because i'm a psychologist <laughs> and I, I i would think that if i were looking at it playing out in somebody else's relationship i probably would have caught it more easily mm -hmm. than and that's often the case isn't it but i i think that i was so motivated to provide my family and friends with the kind of material, and I'm not going to call it content because I wasn't doing it for profit or for a wider audience, that they would then respond to in a way that was making me feel connected and that was making me feel good. And it was ameliorating some of the sadness of mm. growing my daughter growing up 5,000 miles away from my family of origin and my often feeling lonely and wanting to kind of keep those threads of connection going, those were all legitimate motivations. Right. But there would have been other ways of doing it, which are ways that I turned to after I stopped sharing on social media. Those were always there. It's so tricky when writing about it because I want to be sympathetic to those motivations. And, you know, that was a fascinating thing in the Truman piece that the parents felt similarly to you. Oh, we're helping uh, family far away. See what's going on with our kids. And then once strangers are looking, it's like, oh, well, we're helping to brighten strangers' days. And, you know, multiple people have told me over the years, like, that suicidal strangers would reach out and say, you know, you've given me a will to live. How true that is in reality. I mean, that's a very powerful thing to believe that your content can do. Um so, you know, it's never as it's well, sometimes it's black and white. There are some families who I sincerely believe have no one's best interests at hearts. But uh, the majority of the time, it's not black and white. You can think that you're doing something really good for yourself, your children and the world. And then it can spiral out of control without you questioning 
uh, what it is that you're really doing. But I do think it's funny because, you know, a common one will be like, oh, we just want to record our memories. We want to have something to look back on and remember it. And you're like, well, yeah, but you don't need to put it online, right? You could just do all that and put it on a hard drive and bring it out and watch it with your family. You don't need to put it online. So sometimes people will say to me, oh, I remember those dialogues because I used to capture these dialogues and how amusing they were and they brightened my day and all those kinds of things. And I hope you recorded those in some other form. And I thought, well, actually, I'm not sure that I did. I page through the notes thing on my phone and think, well, I didn't, I stopped doing that. Now there will be a lot of things that I forget as a consequence, but then at the same time, I was probably a lot more present in those moments because I didn't have one eye towards curating or commodifying it in some kind of way. Because I think that my daughter did develop a real sensitivity to a feeling that feeling of being commodified or used as fodder for a story, which is probably the fate of a lot of people who's a parent or brother or sibling is a writer. <laughs> Everything is copy kind of attitude. So where does the line between appreciating someone and, you know, kind of using them also as copy for some of the stuff that you do? How do you navigate that? But absolutely what you're saying, I encountered the same dilemma about how do I write this chapter, especially from my vantage point as somebody who's participated in it, But I do think, I mean, you hesitated to use the word content because you said there wasn't audience and money, but I do think we're all content creators now. Um, And I think that that is, it's helpful for us all to think in that way. Uh, As you said, to be like, oh, I'm not in the moment because I'm thinking about how I can phrase this to be the funniest on Twitter or, you know, get the right picture for Instagram and then questioning your own motivations, right? It's not about being judged by the external world. We can all find our own balance with our own motivations there. And I also think that you're right that it's a wider societal issue. It's not just individuals. I mean, uh, tail end of last year, I wrote a piece for Wired about teachers TikToking children, um, which is really common in America, less so in the UK. But I was so unnerved by these videos that would come up when I was scrolling TikTok of teachers, um, you know, either it, it ranged from kindergarten students that they'd film singing and dancing. And you just think, God, they've got no privacy. That's their literal face. Um, you know, that's a huge safeguarding issue that someone can see the badge of the school and approach this child um, all the way to teenagers who were sharing kind of like in in social um we, we call it PSHE, I don't know what it's called in America, social studies classes. They were sharing like their own issues with, you know, their parents' divorce or alcoholism or blah, blah, blah. And again, the issue of consent is muddy because it's like, oh, no one has to be on the camera if they don't want to and blah, blah, blah. And you just think, I just don't think it's in any way safe for teachers to be content creators. And I also don't think it's in any way beneficial. I mean, the argument is that it shows that teachers can be cool. It humanizes them. Um, it allows students to engage creatively in a different format. Um, I'm not sure if that outweighs the safeguarding issues, the privacy issues. Um, you know, some of these teachers even mock their students, um, similarly to kind of in a way that you think is cutesy and you think is like, oh, look what this kid spelt wrong. Look what they wrote on this form. Look at how this drawing actually looks, you know, a little bit like something it shouldn't look like. But you just think, how would that affect an eight-year-old to see that, you know, and to know that a million people have been laughing? Um, I, I just can't, I can't see the value in it. Yeah. And it's weird because again, these conversations aren't happening. I reached out to teaching bodies and boards about, and schools themselves about what guidelines do you have for social media? And it's really funny because their guidelines are about Facebook and like not tagging pictures of school trips or not taking pictures of sports days and sharing them publicly, but they're not about TikTok because it's newer. And they're not about the things that the teachers themselves are doing. 
it's something that's really frustrating about my beat um you know writing about tech and society is just thinking who's paying attention to this who's gonna who's gonna do anything about this um and just having to wait whilst things get worse and worse and i think that's the really sad thing about you know my first decade uh, my first piece about children on youtube was a decade ago i don't think anything's improved in fact i think it's got way worse um so I just think the examples of the extremes that creators will go to. Um, so I think generally we have that problem with the internet, right? We're living in this attention economy where people have to do more and more extreme things to get noticed. Um, so to get those views, to sustain that audience, people will clickbait miscarriages. Um, there's a toddler that was filmed licking a penis lollipop. One family sold a realistic doll um, that re- that was a replica of their newborn baby for about 300 pounds um one family installed cctv cameras in their home so they can film their children at all times so they don't miss uh snippets of what they're doing when the the vlog camera is not rolling so i just think the extremes that people go to have really ramped up um combined with the fact that obviously there there has been no uh new safeguarding measures um and I also think we're more immune to those extremes as well, right? Like, I just think we just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, another day on YouTube. Um, whereas before, perhaps, you know, it might be considered shocking. For many people, it's like a new normal. Yeah. And as you were saying, when you were thinking about not waiting, being able to wait for these children to grow up so you could see how this was going to turn out, it the psychological, the social consequences of some of these things have yet to mature. There are lots of chickens that have yet to come home to roost a lot of unanswered questions. We're starting to make some kinds of predictions, perhaps, for example, that Barclays study quite a few years ago now about the number of children who by 2030, will now children, future adults that were likely to be victims of financial fraud or identity impersonation because of material their parents had shared. For me, it's really hard to think about this content that's available, especially when it's really voluminous and really rich, as separate from things around deep fakes, artificial intelligence, increasingly realistic video chatbots or audio clones that are voice clones that could fool somebody's bank, for example. It feels like a future identity impersonation crisis is really ripe for the harvest. And it's going to involve, I think, largely kids who have been it's 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 ridiculous to say, oh, this is anonymized or this is whatever, whatever. I mean, these kids who are being shared about, if there's a lot of content out there about them, there's a lot of things that bad actors could do with that that is more in the impersonation camp and the fraud camp than it is in the abuse camp. Not that impersonation isn't perhaps a kind of abuse in the end. Yeah. But it's so insidious, I suppose, because we can think of things like, you know, sexual exploitation, a paedophile coming to a a child's school because they know everything about them and they can pretend, you know, we can think of fraud. But there's so many subtle ways that it's going to affect these people as they grow. I know of at least one uh, boy who was filmed since he was a teenager. He's now about 22. He struggled to get jobs um, because, you know, if you Google him, that's what comes up. And people are a bit like, oh, what's this? I don't know who this is or why he has this profile. Um, so it can have these real knock-on effects, as you mentioned, relationships, you know, do you know if someone's dating you because, or being your friend because they like you or because they want to be on your YouTube channel, um, you know, forming the selfhood and identity, I think would be really impacted. And I think what I actually find sadder, because there are a few examples now of people who have kind of turned away from their parents, turned away from being vlogged and made those 
boundaries clear. But what I kind of find sadder is when you see someone who has kind of quote unquote drank the Kool-Aid and they're going to go straight into a content creation career of their own. And with young girls, you can watch them become, you know, sexualized content creators, um, become these influencers. And there was never a moment in their life where they got to question, you know, what am I going to be when I grow up? What am I going to do? What is my identity? What is my purpose? They've just taken everything that their parents said that they should be and become it and fed this attention economy. And yeah, somehow I I do find that sadder, weirdly, because I just think, God, I wish you had the space to think and move and grow offline. That commodification thing and that feeling of having essentially been raised not just as a person, but as a product. Yes. And there was this moment, and I don't know why she said this or where she got this phrase, but we were attending at that time, I think, a virtual uh, information evening for a secondary school So I guess she would have been, yeah, she would have been around the same time that I had this conversation with her nine or 10 and the headmaster of this school who was presenting sort of jokingly referred to the graduates of the school as finished products. And I saw her visibly stiffen and she leaned over and said to me, I am not a product. And then she started sketching a doodling this picture of a little person that had a little sign, like a protest sign that said, I am not a product. And I thought, here's this small child And she doesn't have social media accounts of her own. She hasn't commodified herself. If she has a sensitivity to that, to being viewed as a product, did she get that from me? And the way that I curated, presented, published her online from early on, because I was one of those people who did share a sonogram, who did share baby pictures, who did share eventually these dialogues when she began to talk that really showed quite a lot about her personality. And I think that that did have a more powerful impact that crowded her more than parenting practices of sharing information would have done before the digital age because of this thing about how the whole community came to think, this is her, this is how we will approach her. And if she doesn't act like we think she's going to act, we're going to be confused by that. And we're going to almost convey to her that she said something wrong that they didn't expect. And that to me is super powerful. It is. It is. And it's it's sad, isn't it? But I mean, you obviously equipped your daughter with the knowledge to question this stuff, which I think is wonderful. You know, she obviously did have that strong reaction to being called a product. And I think that's where this idea of judgment versus conversation comes back in again, where it's like, I don't want people to feel judged. I don't want people to feel like it's terrible to, you know, share the sonogram, et cetera. But I do want them to start to question themselves and question the things that we all take for granted as just like, quote unquote, the way the world works and question whether that needs to be that way and whether we can have these conversations with our children. Um, Just so these things, you know, they don't have to wrestle with this alone and that things can improve. Yeah. This whole interview with Amelia was incredibly eye-opening. All of it was relevant. It was very hard for me to edit it down for this podcast. So you can hear the whole of it if you're an annual paid subscriber for Life on Tech. And by the way, you'll also get a free copy of Reboot from me wherever you live in the world, which might be a particular benefit for American listeners as the book is not released there until next year. But I encourage you to check out Amelia's portfolio at ameliatate.com. She has done some incredible work and should write a book herself, I think. It's A-M-E-L-I 
T-I-A-T-A-I-T.com. Now, my book proposal before Reboot, the book proposal I put together after the conversation with my daughter, was mostly about charenting. The concept for Reboot ultimately became much broader, looking at the whole lifespan and lots of different kinds of relationships. And besides, Leo Plunkett had already written Charenthood, why we should think before we talk about our kids online. In this wide-ranging conversation, Leah and I speak about charenting for profit, which she calls commercial charenting, but also we talk about some of the cultural and legal dimensions of this practice. My name is Leah Plunkett. I'm the author of the book, Sharonhood: Why We Should Think Before We Talk About Our Kids Online. I'm also a member of the faculty at Harvard Law School and a faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. In addition, I am the very proud mom of two human children, two canine children, and I am the grandparent of a guinea pig. The guinea pig belongs to my son. <laughs> Um, so he is the pig parent, and I am the pig grandparent, also known as the grand pig. Was there a critical moment where your interest in sharenting and its impact on children really coalesced transformative experiences or critical moments that have, might have really honed your interest? There were a couple of blog posts on uh, often called mommy blogs. I know that can be a loaded term, so maybe I will say parenting blogs. And this would have been in the early 2010s, where I experienced a really profound sense of visceral discomfort, and also just intense, I would say, emotional and intellectual discomfort. On the one hand, it was really interesting to read those pieces. They were well-written. They made the author and their families vulnerable. They were intense. And of course, authenticity and vulnerability are so fundamental to impactful writing and other forms of art and communication. So on the one hand, I was very drawn in. And on the other, I had the sense of like, I just felt creepy. I felt like a creep. And even though I was not peering in these people's windows, right? They were literally metaphorically, right? Like opening up the windows and the doors and the world. I just, this feels wrong to me. And as somebody who at that point had spent several years serving as an attorney for kids and teens who most of my clients had had mental health issues and were getting in a lot of trouble at school or, or at home or with law enforcement. So they were a particularly vulnerable population through no fault of their own, just life circumstances. And I was like, wow, I, you know, I, I went to law school and I spent all this time you know, on the front lines of being a legal aid attorney to protect kids and try to set them up for success in the present and in the future. And here I am in kind of my down time kind of like creeping around these families who are clearly having some some issues some stuff as all families do and like i i mean it's okay right legally like i'm not because i said like looking in their window uh, but it felt off to me it felt wrong so that was really transformative 
even before I started trying to figure out how to have this conversation in a way that wouldn't make people feel like they were about to get a lecture from their assistant principal in high school was I wasn't sure what word to use. And I remember being in some of the legal research databases, trying to figure out even which terms to search to figure out what my fellow colleagues in legal academia and my fellow colleagues who are practicing in the bar and getting decisions from judges and my fellow colleagues who are lawmakers and regulators. It's like, okay, so what, what do we call the ubiquitous practice of parents, but also grandparents, aunts, uncles, teachers, coaches, and other trusted adults picking up our phones, our tablets, our laptops, and just blasting a bunch of pictures, videos, and private information. Because as you were saying in the framing of your thoughtful invitation to reflect on this process, it was already ubiquitous by the early 2010s. It has become even more so. And like many things that just kind of get woven into the fabric of our daily lives, it can be hard to figure out what the word or is or words are. That was challenging. I really was literally not sure what to search for. Maybe it's reflective of just the pace of change and uptake of new technologies that sometimes even the vocabulary, much less the law and the regulation, takes a while to catch up <laughs> to what's already occurred and what's already embedded. And when I was reflecting on this and digging a little bit further into the legal literature myself, not being a lawyer, being a psychologist, but finding myself in the legal literature, I started thinking America seems to have a particular kind of culture that's reflected in the legal system that influences how families think about their um, rights to do what they want to do with their family's information. This is my family. These are my children. This is my decision. And it strikes me that that cultural and then legal context is a bit different, perhaps, than some other countries around the world. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the cultural and legal aspects that maybe mark out the United States as being maybe not entirely distinct, but having a, you know, a, a kind of a certain way of thinking about things. Absolutely. Very, very deeply ingrained in the United States legal system and the surrounding culture and society is a fierce protectiveness of family autonomy and the idea that one's home is one's castle in the brick and mortar sense, but also in terms of the decisions one makes within one's home and how those then go out into the world. We wind up sometimes with a lot of space between what we would think of as being in the best interest of children overall and what we think of as being a protected family home space that the government and others shouldn't enter into. But but yeah, it's kind of hard for me to imagine in the United States, given that fierce protection of the individual, the family as a, as a unit about which the family, head of the family makes decisions, uh, it's kind of hard for me to imagine the United States at the federal level doing something like some other countries are doing or contemplating doing, and that's legislating about whether parents can share 
on social media and disclose or uh, information on social media about minor children. It's 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 hard for me to wrap my head around the United States taking that move. I do think, though, there are many ways in which the Sherrington conversation is actually very intimately intertwined with this conversation about child welfare and child safety in the United States in a in a couple of key ways. One is we now have in the United States and globally a largely unregulated hundreds of million, probably multi-billion dollar industry that is largely unregulated of child labor in the sharenting context. In my book, I call it commercial sharenting, but the you know, term probably more in circulation would be you know, family influencers, mom influencers, kid influencers. And we are talking about the fact that there are so many families in the United States and beyond who are having their children work for them in their homes with essentially no labor protection whatsoever. And tragically, sometimes those things that may be most exciting or titillating or horrifying, but you still can't look away, to viewers can be things that are really bad for the kids. There have been some pretty highly publicized cases in the United States, for instance, the Daddy-O5 YouTube channel back in 2014, 2015, where viewers actually called that state child protective services agency to say, we think there are things happening in that home that are not safe. How do you know? We know because the family is filming them and putting them on YouTube for half a million subscribers, right? So I do think there's a way in which on the commercial sharenting side, these conversations about basic child safety are very intertwined with what digital markets are driving. Another one is that when we're talking about kids who may be in homes where tragically parents are suffering from substance abuse disorders or mental health issues or other conditions where they really, really need help, sometimes the parents' engagement with the digital world can exacerbate or at the very least not help their underlying mental health condition, substance abuse condition, et cetera. And that can then result in them making perhaps decisions about what they share about their kids that they might not have made if they had appropriate services and resources. And it also may, because of course, when you're online, it's it's a loop. You give information, you also get it. If a parent is struggling with some sort of mental health issue or substance abuse or related condition, and they're going online and they're falling down, let's say, a rabbit hole of a dangerous digital conspiracy theory, or they are so invested in their online worlds that they really are ignoring their kids. Ironically, they could be invested in their social world online and they're sitting there posting pictures about their kids while actually ignoring them or not going to work or not doing things that actually would provide for their kids' needs, that's really intertwined. So I do think that there's certainly categories of the Sherrington conversation that absolutely fall into the, the champagne problems uh, bucket. I do not think that the way forward 
on sharenting or other aspects of youth digital privacy and digital life in the United States will be a comprehensive federal law that tries to achieve greater privacy by regulating parental action. I do have a little bit of hope that there could be a federal law that steps in to regulate the child influencer slash family influencer. Okay, I'm just gonna call it commercial sharing because that's what makes sense to me. I do think, <laughs> Uh, I, I do think we may get federal labor law around around commercial sharing, but it's a long way off. It, it wasn't until I encountered your work that I had ever thought about commercial sharing against the backdrop of child labor and child labor laws. But it's one of those things that once you've seen it that way, it's very hard to unsee. Interesting thing is, and this gets a little bit to that perception of whether your child is part of you or somehow part of an integral family or a separate entity, the the feeling of boundary between the parent's identity and the family identity or the kid's separate identity. I think that a, a lot of people who are in that commercial sharing space, I'm not sure how much they conceptualize their child as separate to their lives. Well, I'm just sharing about my life. I'm just sharing about my life. I want to share about my life and you're part of my life. You're a component part of my life. So that thing around separateness or component part of parent feels a little bit murky, I think, in the outlook of a lot of commercial sharenters. I think it's totally murky. I think it's so murky. I find it murky in my own life. And I am very sympathetic to the perspective, especially with young, young kids, that you as a parent, mom, dad, non-binary parent, or caregiver who's not maybe a biological or legal parent, I do really think that we have to figure out how to continue to respect the reality that kids are part of a parent's life. They're part of a family life. They're part of communities and networks. And this idea that you can't, as a parent, acknowledge or draw on or include your child in your life, I don't think that that's practical or ethical. I don't think it's fair or realistic. And of course, we parents, most of us, probably almost all of us, have some digital life. We may not be on this platform. We may be on that platform. We may not be on social media, but we're using text messages, right? All of that is still sharenting. And certainly, if you told me, Elaine, that I had two choices, and only two, that it was government gets to decide what parents say or don't say about their kids online or parents get to decide, I would not hesitate for a second. It should be parents. As soon as you give it to government or tip too far to government, you start to really dangerously intrude into individual freedom. Is there, is there not, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not sure about this, in the United States, a sort of parental immunity doctrine almost whereby when a child reaches their majority, if they have some kind of issue or are experiencing or feeling that they're experiencing some kind of harm that arose out of a direct consequence of that, their parent sharing information about them online, can they 
act legally once they've reached 18 or 21 or whatever it would be in the United States? There are a lot of obstacles and barriers, and also it could hypothetically happen. And here's why. I would say we should never, ever underestimate the power of high octane creative litigators when they are representing individual clients. And that is a feature, not a bug of the US legal system, is that you can get into court if you have a non-frivolous basis that comports with all requirements, you can go into court and ask for a judge to hear you out. And a lot of law in the United States is case law, it's common law. It is evolving through ongoing judicial interpretations of existing bodies of legal doctrine to novel facts or to changed circumstances or to new interpretations of law. And so as a feature, not a bug, our legal system is set up to be able to have individual litigants come forward and go to court with things like, I have a new interpretation, a non-frivolous, non-harassing interpretation of an invasion of privacy tort or a negligent infliction of emotional distress tort. And will there, will there be a lot of barriers to suits like that by children who achieve the age of majority suing their parents? There will be. Parents do enjoy broad legal protection for reasonable choices that they make as parents. Um, and as we were talking about earlier, Elaine, for, um, for many, many, many sharenting choices that you or I or a judge even might say, gosh, that's not the best choice you could have made. We can say that all we want, but not even the judge could say that's not the best choice you could have made. Therefore, you are legally liable for violating civil or criminal law. Um, and, you know, sharenting is so ubiquitous and exists with very, very few legal impediments to it at this point in the United States that I would be pretty surprised if we were to see a wave of individual litigants coming forward upon achieving the age of majority. But I wouldn't be surprised to see more than we've seen to date as the kids who are growing up sharented attain the age of majority. Are there any technological innovations? I'm thinking, for example, about the relative ease with which voice clones or video chatbots or other things that could achieve identity impersonation, things related to facial recognition technology, some of these technologies. I'm wondering if the emergence of some of these technologies should amplify our concerns. I'm just curious how you think that some of these newer innovations interface with some of the questions we have or should have about Sharenting. You know, Sharenthood came out in 2019. And so even in the four years since publication, you're absolutely right, Elaine, that the warp speed acceleration of AI and other emerging generative tools has accelerated every single privacy and related concern that Sharon Hood was talking about. And you're also right that they apply to all of us as adults and people of all ages. I think I have a couple of reflections. The first is I would really, really, really love to see the federal government in the United States come out 
with some legislation that covers the entire country that proactively heads off uses of private data for training and developing AI and deploying it in ways that get to the core of people's identities and intimate relationships. I am pro-innovation. I love technology, although I often need other experts to push the buttons, as my colleague who's in the studio with me can attest. But I do think that we need to have some practical, ethical, binding, legal constraints on uses of current and emerging AI and other generative tools in ways that could impersonate people, in ways that could deprive them of current or future life opportunities. And we need to have ways for both individuals and regulators to enforce federal law on this point. I don't think there really is any, any value in the federal legislature spending its time trying to micromanage too much about the creation of AI. I certainly think there's a very valuable role for the federal government to play within its agencies, within best practices, et cetera. But in terms of the train has left the station, the horses are out of the barns, right? Even that tired chicken that everybody thought was going to sleep forever in the top level of the barn has flown the coop. Like, so it, the technology is here and it is coming. And so we need to think about what are the uses? What are the deployments of the technology that have the most potential to cause harm to people in the course of their daily lives? especially our kids, and we need to either prohibit or thoughtfully sort of thread the needle on when those technologies can be used. Again, the whole of this conversation was extraordinarily thought-provoking for me. I really enjoyed it, and you can hear all of it as well if you become a paid subscriber to Life on Tech. But you should definitely buy Sharon Hood from MIT Press or wherever you get your books and visit Leah's website on leahplunkett.com. That's L-E-A-H-P-L-U-N-K-E-T-T.com. And the links should be in the notes on the newsletter or in the show notes wherever you're listening to your podcast. The release date for Reboot is getting so close. It's only a couple of weeks to go and I'm very excited. There are links to pre-order on my Substack and on my website at elainecasket.com slash publications. But essentially, go to whichever retailer or e-tailer you use to buy books, click on pre-order, or ask your friendly local bookseller to order a copy for you. Annual paid subscribers to Life on Tech, though, get copies of not just Reboot, but also my previous book, All the Ghosts in the Machine, and access to the full interviews with Amelia and Leia that you enjoyed in part during today's episode. Next week, I'll be looking at tracking, surveillance, and social scoring for school-aged children, not just by their parents, but by their schools. Thanks for listening, and take care until next time.